0: Everybody, women for Wanawake here would love to wish you a happy International Women's Day. Thank you for listening. Today
1: we will be speaking to two incredible guests who are here to represent and in their own right and expertise the Global Gender and COVID-19 Working Group which brings together academics from around the world who conduct real-time gender analysis To identify and document the gender dynamics of COVID-19 and gaps in preparedness and response. So while this is possibly the most relevant interview, one which we are super super excited about, um, there has been a lot of misinformation and nervousness um, around COVID's impact on women from care to treatment to humanitarian intervention to COVID actually affecting our path to equality, to gender equality, by slowing it down. Our two experts uh, representing this global working group will be able to help us make sense of it all.
0: Thank you very much Nina and welcome Anne and Claire, really happy to have you here with us today. Um, So exactly, so the first guest we have is Anne Gunjili, who is a senior technical advisor for gender-based violence and violence against children program, LVCT Health in Nairobi, Kenya. Anne is an applied public health researcher who implements research studies and pragmatic facility and community-based interventions and programs with a focus on prevention and response to violence against children and violence against women and girls. In the Gender COVID Working Group, Anne's role is to conduct interviews on the, with the marginalized population of women in urban informal settlement to better understand the secondary effects of COVID has had on their lives, specifically health, social and economic well-being. The intention with the Uh, With The data generated um, is to disseminate uh, to policy and decision makers to better inform their gender responsive plans at county and national levels across relevant ministries, departments and agencies. We also have Claire Wenham with us today, Assistant Professor of Global Health Policy at London School of Economics and and Political um, Science. Claire specialises in global health security, and the politics and policy of pandemic preparedness um, and outbreak responses through analysis of influenza, Ebola and Zika. Her work considers global health governance, role of uh, WHO, um, national priorities and innovative financing for pandemic control, particularly in Latin America. More recently, Claire has been analyzing the downstream effects of global health security policy on women with a forthcoming uh, Oxford University Press book offering a feminist critique um, of the Zika outbreak and co-founding and co-leading the Gender and Covid Project and Working Group. Her work features in The Lancet, British Medical Journal, Security Dialogue, International Affairs, BMJ Global Health and Third World Quarterly. She's previously worked with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, delivering projects relating to surveillance and transmission of infectious disease. So again, thank you so much for joining us. And wow, what an interesting career you guys have and interesting spaces you work in. So looking forward to diving in with this. So Nina, I'll hand hand over back to you.
1: Thank you, Paris. Yeah, as Paris is saying, this is so exciting. Um, And it really feels, it's so so nice to also have kind of like a global um, analysis of COVID-19 as well. Um, So first question, Um, Anne and Claire we wanted to start with a light question to ease our listeners into this very relevant and and heavy topic for some could be triggering for some so apologies if anyone is triggered Um, and which we know so many are burning to know more about basically so is there anything to be optimistic about in the world of COVID-19 today and perhaps helping us shine light on gender inequality does it help that and which country do you think has responded best to Covid
2: nineteen. <laughs> Thanks so much for having us here today. Um, guess there's a lot of a lot of things to unpack in that question. I think there's two main things that makes me op- optimistic from our research. Well, my research over the last uh, five years or so, and the work I'm doing with Anne and and others in our project, um, which has been so illuminating over the last uh, you know nine months or so. The two main things I think is the first one is that people are talking about gender in health emergencies. They never were before. So when we were looking at the gendered effects and the gendered issues that emerged during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, gender really wasn't a conversation that was happening. When I was uh, researching the Zika outbreak in Brazil uh, the last few years, my book, I mean, that's 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 a health emergency which is so interrelated with women because it affects women during their pregnancy and affects Um, you know babies being born with microcephaly and still there wasn't this conversation about gender even though it was so expressly about women and so actually I think the thing that's positive is that people are now talking about gender in health emergencies Mm. and there's been like a long history that you know Anne knows much better than me of um, you know gender in health systems more broadly and, and all the issues that come with that but in this very narrow space of health emergency response it's often developed in a very gender neutral way. It's focused on epidemiology, on case numbers, on you know how many people are getting infected in each day. And that loses the reality of actually who it is that's getting infected, whether they are, you know, men, women, rich, poor, whatever they might be, which I think this exists. And this outbreak of COVID has really exposed that, that each of those case numbers are a person. And so they're affected in different ways. And it's important also to recognize, and I think what COVID's really exposed, is when we talk about health emergencies and how it impacts on women, it's not just about direct, uh, you know, effects of the virus. It's not just about who is showing symptoms and who is, you know, living and surviving and who's unfortunately dying. It's also recognising the myriad of downstream effects of health emergencies and how they change our lives and how they change the way society works. And basically what we're seeing again and again and again is that women Absorb a lot of that impact, and that's global. And I think the positive is that's now being talked about. The problem is it's not necessarily being talked about by decision makers in the right space, mm. but it's having a conversation in public. It is being talked about, thought about at the World Health Organization, at the UN, at the United Nations Security Council. Now that we haven't seen that trickle down into governments quite yet, or where we have, it's been in quite limited ways talking about gender-based violence or maternity services, and we shouldn't belittle that, those are obviously vitally important, but we haven't seen a kind of fundamental shift to take a kind of feminist approach to thinking about this and putting women at the center of all policy intervention efforts. And the second, sorry, I've gone on a bit of a tangent there, but the second thing I think that is, um, you know, shining light and, and giving a bit of hope is that I think people now recognize or oh, people are more recognized rec, um, more cognizant of the informal labour that happens in households. I think employers are, I think the government is, I think in you know, dual parent households with traditional gender norms, I think men are. I think the fact that everyone's at home and everyone's seeing it, that's an opportunity to jump on that. And as we start to build back better, it's an opportunity for government to try and recognise that. And do something different now. Whether they do is another question, but I think you know, exposing the problem and making it visible is the first step.
1: Wicked, thank you so much, Anne, for that very, very kind of analytical and very inspiring answer, um, and also just very realistic too. Um, Anne, um, the same question to you.
3: I'll, I'll try and give what, what Claire has just explained is from the global perspective. So allow me to share at least from what I'm seeing from Kenya and the global South countries, the low and middle income countries. Um, Gender-based violence, for example, and the issues to do with gender inequality has always been something that's not talked about in any of our spaces. We have so many policies talking about gender mainstreaming and the need to always consider women being the most vulnerable, being the most marginalized, especially those in urban informal settlements in terms of their access to health, access to financial services, um, you know, their health and social well-being. It's just something that's not been talked about at all. And I can tell you that for a fact in Kenya. It's it all takes mostly the effort of implementing partners to talk about some of those things. Then came COVID. And I think from the various tables where we are, in the technical working groups, implementing partners who collect this data as part of their programming, were able to make enough noise to try and tell the decision makers, the policy makers, that during this COVID, there's been a rise in the number of sexual violence cases, there's been a rise of reports being made at community level of women reporting that they're, they're being locked up with their abusers during this period, they do not have access to services. This is when they reach their peers or their mentors. Um, at Obesity Health, we do um, programming with a huge number of adolescent girls and young women. They were reporting to their peers and to their mentors, who then report to us that they're actually undergoing um, gender based violence, the difficulties that they're having, um, the risk of teenage pregnancies. So, what COVID did, especially in Kenya, is it brought that conversation to the surface. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, for a moment, because right now, um, again, I give a case example of Kenya, we are two years into elections, so the president did come out strong and say, you know, we need to collect this data on gender based violence, but there's just not, there's not that commitment, so On one hand, during this COVID period, all partners were able to collect this information and share it with the policymakers and tell them, you know, this has been going on for a long time, but now more than ever, we really need to target our programming. The government needs to put in resources, invest in the women, especially those in informal settlements who are most disadvantaged ordinarily, but because of COVID, their risk factors and their vulnerabilities have exploded. So we need to put them at the forefront in all our policy making and in all our decision making in all our national operation plans, our response plan. What COVID brought was the, the bare fact that gender mainstreaming is just on paper. So it became a reality, especially for us who are were on this table, sat on these tables and trying to push this agenda, such that even when you're presenting to them and telling them that this is an issue that needs to be considered, it just wasn't. So whilst on paper we are are talking about gender mainstreaming in the response plan, whether it was this COVID or any other emergencies, natural disasters, as much as we're giving them the data, they're just not doing enough from where I stand to be able to address some of these inequities. So, and inequalities. So on one hand, it was a good thing, you know, I a good thing because all this data, we were able to collect it and present it in a manner that can actually be utilized. On the other hand, it just showed that clearly data is not enough for the government to actually take action. And as a nation, what do we actually need to do to make sure that gender mainstreaming actually happens? If it doesn't happen now, I don't know then when else it could ever happen, but it just made that reality very clear that there's, that there's a lot of advocacy and lobbying that needs to be done for us to be able to acknowledge that out there in the community, women are actually suffering, adolescent girls are actually suffering. What more do we need to actually make the policy makers, the decision makers open their eyes and try and make gender responsive um, decisions in really the responsive plans, consider that woman who's out there and not just a one-size-fits-all because we're still working on the operation of one-size-fits-all. So COVID was able to bring up that data, however it showed that it just, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of gender mainstreaming and addressing some of these inequalities with or without this pandemic going on.
0: Thank you, um, Anne, and thank you Claire, for both your answers. And I think you're both kind of saying the same thing, that it's great that this is the forefront of women and gender and and having kind of a feminist outlook to protecting people and dealing with disasters but again it's the will of the governments and I when you're both saying that I'm thinking obviously being Kenyan and living here I know that both governments are very heavily led by men so I Mm. feel um, it's going to be hard for them to really take it on board like we would as women because we're the ones suffering fair enough we might not be personally but as women we can empathize with whether you're living in India or you're living in Kenya to London to you know america and i think for me it's the lack of because unfortunately with this you do kind of well so we have seen that we need women in office for change to actually happen i think a man can say yeah we're going to do this but when it comes to it it's not an issue that directly affects them um it's like race politics you know uh how could you tell someone who's never experienced racism that they need to tackle this and they need to mm. i think i agree with both your kind of reservations, but also your kind of hope and and happiness of seeing that this has actually been brought to the forefront, because that's what you both have been working on for many, many years and devote your careers to. Um, so the next question is about um, the vaccination, which as I'm, I'm sure in Kenya that there's the same and I don't know whether you're aware, but in the UK, there's a lot of people who are not too keen on getting the vaccination based on the narrative being said about not being safe and et cetera. And misinformation. Mm. So, um, there are young women in this country and across the world who are nervous about taking the vaccinations due to uh, rumours around that there's not enough evidence um, and how it could affect fertility. So could you perhaps, uh, perhaps debunk this rumour um, and help us feel a bit more confident about the vaccine programme,
3: particularly for young women? um i'll I'll again give our experience in kenya um whether or not there's data apparently we operate more on rumors at community level vaccines have always been a contentious thing in kenya i mean even with the hpv um, vaccine that came it was all about oh it's been loaded with hiv it's been loaded with um contraceptives they're trying to you know Um, Shrink the Kenyan population because they don't want people voting for a certain person, so there's all these myths and misconceptions about vaccines that even just for the normal ordinary ones, the ones that you'd think would be very easy to take up because our population is a low-lying fruit in terms of protecting themselves. It's been difficult, so I can only imagine when this one comes to Kenya how it is going to be perceived. Um, there's a there's already rumors and and it's sad that these rumors are going on just because of the political atmosphere we are in right now again it's two years to actually it's one year to the elections that only the rich will get it and the poor warn to you it's not meant for you you cannot be able to afford it it will be loaded with x y and z a lot of effort will be will be needed at ground zero at community level to try and change some of these misconceptions uh, in terms of investment, even more than actually getting the numbers to go to the clinic and have the vaccine given. I don't think the issue is in Kenya at the time that it does come to Kenya is a women being injected. It's actually getting them to that facility and you know, getting over all those barriers in terms of the misinformation that is out there about it. And it's not even reached here yet for them to actually access the vaccine. From the conversations that I've had within my circles, I don't, nobody is, is objecting to it. Nobody, even this issue is to do with fertility. I think we've had biggest scares with HIV and with the tetanus about fertility. So this will not be anything new to us, but it's certainly been a barrier to uptake of any other vaccine. So this will be another one of those where a lot of community education and awareness will need to be done and um, prior to it being given because otherwise it will be another futile exercise it will be one of those where they informed and understand why it's there they get vaccinated and yet the ones who need it the most because of their circumstances and their vulnerabilities miss out yet again because we've just not educated the masses as much as we should yeah thank you for that and, and Claire yeah and
2: actually <clears throat> in the UK it's very similar trends right it's um we know that there are a lot of people who are worried about getting vaccinated and it tends to fall along lines of marginalisation. It's the people, it's the communities who are most marginalised who are the ones who perceive there to be a, a greater risk. And, you know, this question around uh, COVID, COVID vaccine affecting fertility, I mean, there's no evidence at all showing that that's true, right? It's clearly a rumour. And, you know, what we do have evidence for is if you are pregnant, particularly heavily pregnant, or in postpartum period, COVID can, dis- can affect you seriously. I mean, in the, in the last wave we just had over Christmas here, 9% of people in ICU were pregnant women, right? Like, you shouldn't underestimate that pregnancy is becoming a key risk factor mm. in COVID. And so, you know, if you're looking for evidence, that's the evidence. And so actually, I think we should be pushing the government to, to try and find out more about whether the vaccine's safe in pregnancy, because, you know, at the moment, the government isn't recommending pregnant women get vaccinated, but that's not because it's unsafe. It's because there haven't been any trials done, right? There's no data to show whether it is or isn't safe. So, and, and um, because women aren't a priority, because pregnant women aren't a key priority, we simply don't have that data. Now, we know across the US so far, uh, there's been about 20,000 healthcare workers and associated social care staff who are pregnant who did get vaccinated because they perceive the risk to be actually more to them working on the front lines with and potentially getting COVID than the risk of the vaccine. But as far as I'm aware, no one is systematically collecting that data to try and say if it is safe in pregnant women. And this is going to become more of an issue as we go down the age bracket here in the UK. And when we hit women of reproductive age, you know, at the moment, they're vaccinating what 60 year olds well it's only going to be a couple of months till they get down to 30 year olds 40 year olds people who might be having babies and the government has to have a position on that um, and they have to have a position on that soon.
1: Thank you so much Claire um, and thank you Anne. I think it was re- very interesting um, having again Two different perspectives and from your perspective in Kenya and then Claire from yours in the UK but I know you also have a global perspective too um, from your work um, but it's, it's nice to hear you uh, hear experts and academics um, people who are actually working around COVID-19 response to say let our listeners know to not worry about um, their fertility going forward after having the vaccination because young women need to know that the risk of them getting Covid whilst pregnant there is evidence about as you said Claire and actually there is no evidence right now that a vaccination will affect your fertility. I'm going to move on now this question but I'm sure we can come back to it at a later point and it's very interesting. The next question is, this is to you Claire, Um, you recently wrote a book, it's due out very soon, it's very exciting, called The Feminist Global Health Security, which analyses the myriad of ways health emergencies affect women and how the structure of global health policy perpetuates this. And I know it's written on your Twitter. <laughs> I'm just reading it from your Twitter, and I can't wait to read it. Me and Paris will definitely pick up a copy. And we'll leave that in the show notes as well. Um, so what do you think could be done better? And do you think our, our uh, better in the sense of our COVID-19 response? And do you think our gendered response globally would be better if there were more women in leadership positions? I know Anne had previously touched on that in a previous answer, but Do you think having more women at the table in leadership positions would be better for the response to COVID-19?
2: There's two questions there. So the first one is about how you know how can governments improve the way that they uh, recognize and respond to women in health emergencies and in the book I basically analyze how the way global health security is structured is based around a set of um, a piece of international law which the WHO hosts which requires governments to do certain things during to pre- prepare for, detect, and then respond to health emergencies. And if you dissect each stage of that, there's no recognition of who is affected by outbreaks. There's no recognition of gender of women. It's simply looked at as you know individual case numbers and economics. And so you know if you and so, and therefore it creates policies which. Focus on those things. It focuses on case numbers coming down and ensuring trade can continue. And what I suggest in this book is that if you actually put women into that equation, you create policies that are very different. And so in the book, what I look at is the Zika outbreak in, in Brazil. And the main policies that came out of that were the government asking, well, the government implementing vector control activities, so trying to destroy all the mosquitoes in the communities, getting women to or getting um, households to undertake vector control within their four walls of their homes, making sure you haven't got stored store water anywhere, making sure you haven't got anywhere the mosquitoes could possibly um, start to, to breed. Um, so, you know, vector control in, in, in public and private places and then asking women not to get pregnant. And so effectively, they were saying, you know, clean your house, don't get pregnant. And anyone who knows anything about gender norms knows that those both those activities fall onto women. So women were tasked with performing all the work associated with bringing around the end of Zika, but that was never recognised. And actually, when you spoke to the women who were like living with this every day, they were saying Zika is like the least of our problems. Like we have a gazillion other things to worry about. I I don't even know what you know, microcephaly is. It's not really high on my agenda. And actually, like, if you got them to say, how could we improve vector control, how could we improve the response to Zika, they'd be looking around, you know, ensuring access to health services, ensuring water and sanitation facilities, so they haven't got to store water, ensuring that there is, you know, safe spaces to be able to go and see midwives, right, things that we take for granted here in the UK. But that, you know, if you believe, but, but my point is that if you actually put women in the picture you create very different policies to to respond to an outbreak than you would uh, if you if you don't put them in and so i think what could be done better and like my plea for everyone both during covid and you know any health emergency is just to ask that question like where are the women what are the women doing in this because ultimately what they're doing is the work right they're doing the unpaid unseen work and they're invisible But yet, no health policy would, or no global, no no um, policy introduced by governments to respond to a crisis like this would work without that unpaid labour of women. Mm -hmm. And so, it's just getting governments to recognise that, getting the WHO to recognise that without this unpaid work of women, your policy wouldn't be working; it wouldn't be able to be implemented. So, let's recognise that as a first step. Your second question about would it be different if we had women leaders, I don't really buy in the same way. And there's been a lot of hype around like, oh, look how great Jacinda Ardern's done. Look how great, um, you know, and the Merkel's done and kind of pointing at these these uh, excellent women leaders. But actually, if you unpick the data a bit more, there's been some quite selective sampling of that data. And I, I think my position and when I've looked at the data, what, what I come out at is, no. It's the societies. Societies that elect women are also more likely to have better health systems and therefore they're more likely to be able to respond to a crisis. They're more likely to have a better social contract between the government and the population so that when an outbreak happens and you've got to be able to communicate with the public and that, get that public to listen to you, that, you know, it's societies that have those that are slightly more progressive that are more likely to, to elect women leaders. And there's a paper that just came out today. Um uh, showing this as well. Um, and so I think, yes, we should get women in the leaders for gender parity reasons, but that's not necessarily mean that they are the causal factor of why some countries have done better or worse. It's the societies that they govern and the way that the health system works, which I think is more important.
0: Thank you, Claire. Um just jotted down some things you said, just some takeaways from me. So um Basically, and let you know, let me know if I'm wrong, but a more kind of holistic approach and more represented re, representation of the population in the decision with, with people that are making the decisions. So, having a government that represents, you know, rich, poor, black, white, women, male, because then they're going to be able to that, that's going to lead to a more holistic approach. Um, and then working with people on the ground, listening to people on the ground, people that are being, you know, mostly affected, which kind of links to what Anne's work. Um, And then I just thought about community health workers, Claire, I don't know, because in my old job, I worked for a global health organisation and um, we worked a lot with community health workers, particularly on mental health and maternal child health and HIV and AIDS. And so I think they're key. I I think it will be hard to implement that in the UK, but I think definitely in the global south, um, empowering um, community health workers. I know Uganda have done a really big, Uganda and India, actually, are very, very big on community health workers and they pay them now. Um, I think those are really good people to link governments to the community and keep people informed, particularly rural communities who, again, would think that the, the vaccine is, you know, is not safe. But if you have a community health worker, somebody that lives in your community who can tell you, no, you know, this is safe um, and somebody who has kind of the, the knowledge and experience, that's a good way to link, link people. Absolutely. And in Brazil, um, during the Zika outbreak, Brazil's got an amazing national community health
2: worker programme. But let's not forget that most of those women are, most of them are women almost exclusively right. and they're either unpaid or underpaid. And right. so again, you know, mm. whilst I completely appreciate the, the importance of those those workers in public health, it's also further relying on women's unpaid or underpaid labour in mm. implementing health policies.
0: And just on the public health point, actually, would you say, both of you, that embedding gender into everything is like a public health response you know like how in glasgow i mean it's very different but in glasgow they looked at knife crime i think it was back in the 90s as a public health crisis rather than a separate thing so i think looking at gender politics as something as a because if if women are always more disproportionately affected on any disaster surely it's a public health crisis like homelessness is a public health crisis it's not a separate entity because the same people are being marginally just you know affected so that should be a response why is that why is knife crime more you know because i just traveling around and speaking to people like yourselves just hearing just the the inequality that women face you know day to day and 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 particularly work on domestic violence in kenya which i have an auntie who works on that and, and i'm going to speak to you and about that a bit further but you know women are really in danger um, and even in this country because of COVID and we're just really not taking it seriously. And so Nina and I, this is why we're even here doing this because this is serious. This is not a separate conversation to, you know, human rights and politics and economics. It's its, it's at the center of it. Um, so I can go on about this for, for days, but anyway, so Anne, I'll get to you. Um, so violence against women and girls um, is a major, yeah, public health problem and a violation of women's, uh, human rights and an impediment to sustainable development. Um, globally, WHO estimates that about one in three, 35% of women of productive age have experienced physical and or sexual intimate um, partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime. Um, from a Kenyan perspective and Africa, um, how has COVID-19, if at all, uh, acceler- accelerated this um and what is being done to prevent to prevent it?
3: Okay, um thanks for the question. So I'll fast with this, I'll start with the first bit how COVID-19 has aggravated this in Africa. And again I give the experience based on uh, programming that we do. So COVID happened, and particularly in the major towns, And one thing was, was a lot of job loss. People, especially those in the informal sector, because everything was shut down. So from, from where we stand, from some of the programming that we've done at LV City Health, um, COVID came in March, was officially announced in Kenya in March 2020. And a certain response plans that the government put in place that were to reduce the effect of COVID. So the first one was everything shut down. Restaurants, informal sector, everything shut down. Everybody was supposed to stay at home. So women lost their jobs, men lost their jobs, loss of livelihoods. So you can imagine if your parents were your support system, your friends, your anybody who you rely on is locked outside. For example, in Nairobi, we had the metropolitan services. They had no access to come into the of area. So, of course, increased the people who are left behind their vulnerability. So you had um, families separated, social networks disrupted. So cases of intimate violence were certainly reported to be on the increase during this period. And people are fearful of going to health facilities because that's where they were, you know, screening for COVID and people didn't want to be quarantined. So you find that at community level, the gatekeepers would record a higher number of um, intimate partner violence that would not be reaching the facilities because of fear of either catching COVID or because our controlling partners are now at home with them, they'd certainly not get access um, to the health services or any other support system that they need. And then now you look at children. Traditionally in Kenya, we've seen schools being protective factors for children. So now once they were closed down, our adolescent girls, our adolescent boys were at home. What did we see months later? Increase in teenage pregnancies and when this girls were were questioned by whom it was their fellow peers because teenagers will just get bored and you know the internet has not been shut down they want to explore they want to do all sorts of crazy things so there was an increase in the teenage pregnancies um in our programming we do a lot of um, interventions or work with adolescent girls what again we saw was them complaining that they're just tired of being at home because all they do is work 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 even when Um, the government was supposedly saying that they can be able to access um, education online. Half of these people, or even majority of these people, more than 75%, I think I'd say, do not have access to some of this infrastructure that the government is proclaiming to be out there for the children. So they would lose time, time, they would lose time on education. And instead, what typical parents here is they don't want to see the adolescent idols so they'd make them work, work in the garden at home, look after the other siblings and look after the household so you found that um as much as it was a teenage pregnancy there's adults and girls mostly with a were burdened with um, domestic care and um, again just as their parents were locked up with their abusers suddenly the adults who are stressed out in the community would start violating the children So there are rising the cases of defilement. Mm. I mean, the government put in those uh, measures, the lockdown, the curfew, the social distancing, all those to reduce COVID, but they just did not think ahead of the effect of what that would have to the the society, to the community, at household level, the impact of shutting down you know businesses without giving an alternative in terms of earning livelihood the fact that schools are being closed and now what happens to adolescent girls and boys who are at home what kind of messaging are they putting out there so again they focus so much on who's sick who's not sick who's been quarantined who's recovered who's on home-based care and nothing else that all the other issues that were going on in the in the social world in the social well-being of the of the of the community members, adults and girls and adults and boys, young men and women as well. So yes, it did increase. And I don't think what we experienced here is unique. I think it's the same case as most of the other global South um, countries where there was a lot of focus mentioned before on how many have recovered, how many have died, and not what the effects of some of these measures are in terms of the social well-being of the community members. So that is something that even up to now, I mean, schools have just reopened. We're still living through the rise or spike of teenage pregnancies. Now it's been made into a national agenda. But I don't know whether it's a case of too little too late because the pregnancies have radio cards. So for all those girls who are out of school during this period, we're talking about integrating them, which is difficult. We're talking about their whole life has essentially changed just because of this COVID and all the things that happened during then. the the amazing thing that I found out was certainly so even at our university was the power of social media. You know, before we've always been talking about it, but certainly, now that children are at home, they have access to phones, we started putting out messages for hope, for encouragement, and most importantly, some of the hotline numbers that are functional. These are numbers that nobody else relied on. Right now, there's, I'd probably say, a surge on hotline numbers that people can bring for vocational access or financial access, for psychological call support for literally anything, for health services. We have one um, that's tailored for the youth and young people, children and young people as well. So there was a surge of response in terms of hotline numbers. What COVID showed us was, whereas before we always thought that it's the formal sectors that we need to build their capacity, it's taken us back to the community and shown us that it's important for every community to identify who their vocal persons are, build capacity on how to respond to violence against women and child, because more often than not, they'll be the first responders. So their lives are not completely disrupted by, by COVID. I think those are just some of the key things that that came up for me. But certainly the the power of social media and the importance of working with the community level um, game-changers, the gatekeepers.
1: Thank you so much for that answer, Anne. It was very, very detailed and I was laughing it all off. It was really, really interesting to hear what you've been doing. And it's a lot of really, really life-changing, earth-moving work. Um, It was interesting because there are some similarities here in the UK too, in terms of, um, when schools were closed and when women, in terms of the rise in domestic violence, particularly, there was a very large spike in terms of domestic violence being reported um, and there were kind of different safe words and things that were set up and social media did help a lot of women here as well. Um, it's interesting, I think, how you're saying how with the teenage pregnancy and rise in Kenya, that being direct correlated to um, not being able to go to school I think this is massive, like education in girls is so, so important, so, so important. I would say that until all girls are educated and have the same education as as boys, we will never get over crisis. We will keep having different crises because of gender inequality. I see gender equality as the creator of crisis in many ways. and I know Paris um, wanted to say a few things about the points you made too, um, having also worked for a, um, a global health organization.
0: So Paris, do you wanna add any comments before I go on to the next question? Yeah, thank you, Nina. Um, thank you, Anne, for your answer. And just quickly, um, as Nina said, very similar to stuff that was happening in the UK, particularly based on gender violence. I'm not sure about um, sexual abuse to, to, to women. That hasn't really come out, but I'm sure it will after. There's probably a lot of work being done about that. But it made me start thinking about safeguarding, um, which you know, there's not enough safeguarding in Kenya for children. Um, having, you know, obviously being from there, mm. having a family who work for uh, organisations such as you do, um, I know that that's that's a big thing because um, it's not seen as something that is needed. It's just, and then I, I was also thinking about um, mental health, and obviously with mental health and substance use not being recognised as it should, this has this is what has led to this abuse and rise um, of domestic violence. Because as you know, and I don't have to tell you, but we have big drinking culture in Kenya and people going out and partying. And so these men who are not able to do that, um, then being stuck at home with their kids and their wives and can lead some of them to do this, these type of things. And, and again, same as, as over here. Um, and I think the government need to address safeguarding for children and mental health and that impact. And I think again, like Ebola, um, when I was working for the global health organization, we were kind of working on uh, um, Ebola response. And what we were shocked at is that the governments didn't recognize mental health as being an impact on Ebola. People are losing, This it was like a a disaster, you know, it was like a Armageddon, all these people just all suddenly dropping dead because of Ebola. And they didn't think that they should be safeguarding people's mental health. Um, after the fact and so and I think with COVID we're going to see that a lot here there's been a big rise in mental health in the UK and I'm sure all over the world um but if it's not a priority for the government then it's going to be hard to to to, to tackle That those are just my takeaways Nina. <laughs> So
1: this question, actually, I'm going to change it slightly. So this question was on intersectional um, feminism around um, both of your work, but it's obvious that both of your works it is intersectional. I think you've shown that today from your answers previously. So I'm actually going to add in a new question. And this is, this is, a, this is on the back of a recent article uh, by a woman called Kate Muir for The Guardian has been reporting. This is, it is intersectional in the sense that this is a focus on older women, and around menopause and I wonder if you knew anything about this is the fact that oestrogen it helps your immune system for some women uh not all but for some and there's been studies now that if, if menopausal women so, po- so post their menstruation cycle if they are given oestrogen this reduces their chance of going to ICU and of mortality of, of dying and um so this I found really really interesting. I think for um, our listeners who maybe are who, who are going through their menopause, be interesting if you have any kind of response to this or any knowledge about this. Um, thanks. I mean, I only have a,
2: a small comment. I also read the article this morning or yesterday. I can't remember now. Um, I think what's interesting about it is it speaks to a broader lack of research on issues like menopause and older women. And it's just never, it's it's so rarely researched that we don't really understand menopause as a society, as a scientific community. We don't understand the role of, of hormones, you know, in later age groups. And I think, you know, we need to get better research on that. And I think, you know, if we now know that, you know, giving more estrogen might be a way of reducing women's risk of, you know, severe coronavirus, then I think that's a vital piece of information. And, you know, why can't we use it at, at younger age groups as well, right? You know, why wouldn't we be doing broader trials of this? Um, you know, uh, what about, you know, the use of, of, you know, estrogen-based pills, for example? I mean, there's, there's multiple ways we could do this. Um, and so, you know, I would just suggest that this is why we need research. And we need research to be you know properly considerate of men and women and different age groups and, and all those considerations.
1: Thank you, Claire. Um, that does exactly. I think it's just it's nice coming from someone who works in the industry as well, just to have your analysis. It's, I agree. I think it's really, really we need more information done and in studies and research and understanding of the woman's body, essentially. Um, and same question over to you.
3: I'd probably answer it the same as the vaccine. there's not. Oestrogen menopause is just one of those things that, unfortunately, are not a priority in in the Kenyan context. We seem to rely on the Global North data, um, not bearing in mind that our dynamics, our environment, everything for us here is completely different and we just not prioritized some of those things unfortunately that a lot of the women will go through in Kenya so it's just sad we don't have any dates so unfortunately we can't make any decisions about it and yet even if we're informed by evidence from other countries really not to accept it so it's it's a sad state of affairs in uptake. Of- okay thank you for that and just we've got two final
0: questions for you both um so we've already touched on this the differences and similarities of you know uh, here and in, 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 um, in Africa. But um, do you think there's a big difference between the COVID-19 response from the west to the north to the south to the east? As in, do you think these countries who have previously had viruses like Ebola have responded better due to the existing infrastructures or learning from these disasters that they've had previously?
2: Um Yes, I mean, I think there is a lot of learning. I think that countries that have had previous shocks in their health systems have been the most equipped to be able to deal with this, not necessarily through health system capacity only, but also recognising the severity of it in the early stages and be willing to take those political decisions in the early parts of 2020, which we at the time might have thought was severe, but now they are out the other side and are living pretty much normal domestic lives. Uh, places like South Korea, Taiwan, China, you know um, they've all seen economic growth this year they've all uh, you know have either had short lockdowns or have never been in lockdown and so they've been able to, to really learn from those experiences but I don't think that is you know enough I think there's a lot of multiple I think there's a lot of contributing factors which go into it we've also got countries like Australia and New Zealand who've never been uh, affected by a major pandemic or epidemic um, who have also been decisive in their leadership so I think it's part of the story but not the whole story
1: Thank
3: you, Claire. Same question to Anne. Um, from from where we sit, the Global South um, North, sorry, seems to be doing better than us in terms of the research that they're conducting on this, the uptick of this research, it's being utilized in terms of developing this COVID response plans and they seem to be working for them. We are more of a reactive state down south than, than proactive. Um, We tend to react when an event has radio occurred. So again, um, we've had, for example, HIV epidemic for years on end. We know how it affects women the same way as this COVID. There are some similarities in terms of how the populations, the marginalized populations are being affected by it. And yet, even when COVID came into play, there was still Nothing being done in terms of addressing the gender inequalities that have always been there. So it's it's more of until the cases have increased is when the government says something, throws a statement out there, and then nothing is done because we have other priorities like politics, like you know, um, just other things that seem to take priority over over such matters like COVID and the gender inequalities that it's been caused. So. Our response has not been any different to how we've dealt with things, unfortunately, here. It's we talk about it for two days and then it's certainly taken over by something else. And like the West where they actually focus zero in on the problem, come up with interventions for the populations and, you know, roll it out. So there is a difference between the east and the south and the north but certainly even down south we're just acting out the same way we always have where it takes space for two three days and then we suddenly move on to something else and that is not should not be a priority during this period unfortunately so the
1: last question is if you both had a magic wand and can change the world from the feminist lens what would you do claire we'll go over to you first
2: i would get everyone designing any policy to just ask where are the women. It's really quite simple. That's what the question would be.
1: And same question to you.
3: Um, if if I could, I would challenge some of these gender inequities. You'll probably be surprised that people don't even understand what these inequities are from a gender lens. It's our job, for example, if we study to identify and document them and present them but I'd actually challenge them and see what the issue is when it comes to addressing them um in terms of policy and gender mainstreaming in terms of implementation in terms of resources these are I think barriers that maybe the policymakers have put in their head that this is just a difficult thing to settle just you know put it aside and do this one size fits all so if I had that power I just sit all. This, and in this patriarchal society that we live in, and ask them what is the issue exactly with considering provision of dignity packs, with considering um, improving access to for women to receive health services, the provision of mentality. And all services, you know, even during this gender-based violence, during a few hours, was a debate. And you're thinking, why does it have to be a debate? What is so difficult with allowing people to actually reach the health services, especially with the rise in intimate partner violence that we've seen, the rise in sexual violence to access services? They'd probably not have an answer to it because nobody has ever challenged them. So beyond documenting, I'd actually sit them down and ask them, just tell me what the problem is and how it is that we can actually address it if I had that wish <laughs> I'm striving to get into that point hopefully but yeah thank you and um
0: and we hope you get your magic wand both of you and Claire so that you can you know put this world to right because um you're both kind of doing really important work on the ground work and I think you know your experiences um really speak to, you know, what, what needs to be done. Um, just a quick recap on what you've what you've said. I think, you know, you've both talked about political will, community engagement, um, better representation of the population, so whether this is a gender way or class or race, because that's the only way we're really gonna have, you know, real meaningful change. Um, so I just want to say thank you so much. I think you both uh, represent women for Anoake. You're like me and Nina, so. Yeah, I was thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> like, Sisters, <laughs> we've got our sisters over here, um, and definitely you're both doing you're doing such such great work, and really would like to continue this conversation offline with you guys at some point and see and again what we can be doing to help you and your colleagues in Kenya just to kind of have that global reach which we've talked about before. Um, I know. So thank you for your time, and it's late in Nairobi, um, and yeah, we look forward to speaking with you later
3: thank you so much for the opportunity nina and paris it was great meeting you both thank you take care hey guys hope
1: you enjoyed that episode as much as we did um if you could rate review and subscribe that would be great it helps us find you and it helps you find us and we'll also put claire and Anne's gender covid19 working group notes and how to follow what they're doing in the show notes below so yeah have a wicked day See you soon know bye got-